The Urbanist is brought to you in association with the Department of Culture and Tourism, Abu Dhabi. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is a beacon of hope and inspiration. A catalyst to spark growth and collaboration with museums and experiences, where art and science and nature and technology coexist. The belief of Abu Dhabi that culture is the backbone of our society. Stay tuned for a special episode of the show, in which you can hear His Excellency Mohammed Khalifa Al-Mubarak explain exactly why and how Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is the perfect place to collaborate, create, and innovate. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi, proud partner of The Urbanist on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up, police in American cities like their counterparts around the world are trained for all kinds of eventualities that they face in the job. But never before have police come together for a national training conference on the best ways to interact with their own communities. It's an oversight that is all the more glaring when you consider the toxic combination of high crime and low trust in policing that many US cities are facing today. And so finally, last week saw the first ever Professional Law Enforcement Community Engagement Training Conference. Plesset, for short, took place in Atlanta, Georgia, and Monocle's Chris Chermak was there for us. Chris hears from the conference organisers and also from the civil rights leader, Markle Hutchins. I still believe in marching and protesting. I just think that we have a different path when it comes to law enforcement and communities at this moment in time. He also speaks with police chiefs from cities around the country to get their take on why policing still matters and what they're doing to reach out to the communities in their cities. When we re-engage the officers and improve morale internally, the forward face that they put out towards the community is different. And he speaks with the chief investigator for San Diego's prosecutors about why even his office is reaching out for input from city dwellers. That's where we get a lot of ideas like for homeless court, drug court, veterans court. We get that feedback from the community. This special report is coming up right here on The Urbanist. So over to you, Chris. Just one day before the opening of this first-ever training conference on community policing, a gunman entered a hospital in downtown Atlanta and shot four people, killing one. This morning in Atlanta, gunman no longer on the run. This video capturing the moment police caught up with Dion Patterson. The 24-year-old authorities say unleashed a deadly rampage in a hospital, launching a mass... Atlanta's mayor, Andre Dickens, would later address the training conference and offer praise to law enforcement for their quick response. Atlanta's police chief, Darren Sheerbaum, would receive a standing ovation. The training conference itself was organized by one of Atlanta's civil rights leaders, Reverend Markel Hutchins, a man who has led protests against police in the past I asked Reverend Hutchins about the genesis of the idea for this training conference and what it was like to experience a mass shooting in the host city just hours before it began. 
In a real way, it was a tragic kind of reminder and indicator of just how important this subject matter is. As my team was setting up the registration booth, there were officers with machine guns marching through the hotel trying to apprehend the suspect that unfortunately performed such a heinous act. And it's just a clear indicator that there's too much violence and there's too much crime, there's too much distrust. We've got to figure out a way as a nation to move beyond the challenges and the tragedies that we've experienced over the last several years. We've seen a really troubling uptick in violent crime. We've seen an uptick in gun violence, most especially. And the only way that law enforcement will ever be able to drive down that crime and reverse the uptick is when communities and law enforcement collaborate closely. And that's what this conference is all about. Before we started planning the police at conference, there had not been a professional development or networking or training conference ever that focused on the community engagement sector of policing. So there's a little wonder why police don't always get community engagement right. They've not been given the training to do so. And that's what we seek to remedy through this conference and through our ongoing body of work that will flow from this conference. I wanted to take you back to the genesis of this moment, perhaps for you. It kind of started 10 years ago when you started to have a shift in terms of feeling that it is important to work with police. You weren't always that way. You were somebody who led protests and marches before. Tell me about the moment where that changed for you. It changed only when I saw that it wasn't working. It's not that I have a change of philosophy. I'm still very much passionate about civil rights and social justice. Law enforcement officers that violate the law should be punished to the fullest extent of the law. I still believe in marching and protesting. I just think that we have a different path when it comes to law enforcement and communities at this moment in time. The number one civil rights issue in America today is crime. More people in disadvantaged communities are victimized by crime than any other social injustice that we face. So as a civil rights advocate, as one who believes in Dr. King's vision of a beloved community, crime has got to be front and center. So when I started to really witness that the marching and the protesting, while they allow us to express our anger, our pain, our hurt, which is very, very real, and there's some value in it. I didn't see enough solutions coming from that. Working in collaboration with law enforcement gives us at least an option, an opportunity to talk to those people who are in positions to make a difference. When I was leading a lot of protests and demonstrations, Law enforcement, oftentimes, they didn't like me. They were scared of me. They didn't want to meet with me. They didn't know what to expect. So I couldn't accomplish a whole lot. I mean, I could rally a crowd. I could, I've led some of the largest civil rights demonstrations in Atlanta's recent history. I probably speak and preach with the best of them, and I certainly organize well. But it wasn't changing things. And I think as I've got a 16-year-old son, I'm a single father, and when my son started to get closer and closer to teenhood, I started to realize that I needed to make a real difference, a real impact on these issues. Instead of just raising the social injustice, I had to actually promote a sense of justice. And that's kind of where the shift has been in me. So that's the shift in you. Perhaps I could ask then where you feel we are today when it comes to that trust in policing within communities 10 years on from when you kind of started down this path. What is the state of that in your mind today? You know, I think we have unfortunately 
taken a step back in a lot of ways because of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all of the other tragic incidents, Tyree Nichols, etc., where police officers just do incredibly reckless things that hurt the profession, that hurt our communities, that hurt public safety. It has taken us a step back. But I think every dark moment uh, has a potential for light. And what we're doing now is choosing to light a candle rather than curse the darkness. Our nation will emerge from this moment. Law enforcement will be better. Our communities will be safer because of the period that we have gone through. And I see, you know, there's a change. Uh, There's a shift in law enforcement. Here I am, a civil rights leader, mentored by all the civil rights icons, who a decade ago was marching on cops. And here I am now able to convene a national conference with hundreds of law enforcement leaders from every state in this country, plus the U.S. Virgin Islands, along with senior officials from the Department of Justice, the FBI, ATF, etc. Law enforcement wants to work collaboratively with communities. We just have to expose them to the best tools and resources to connect with the people that they really need to collaborate with. And what is your sense, to be frank, of to what extent communities want to work with law enforcement, to put it on the other side? What's been your experience in that to try and convince them of the importance of it and not giving up maybe on law enforcement? Three years ago, I knew we needed to do something different. So I created National Faith in Blue Weekend to unite communities along with law enforcement, utilizing the faith-based community to do so. And much to my surprise, Faith in Blue grew within a three-year time frame to be the largest and most consolidated police community outreach project in American history. What that taught me is communities absolutely want to work with law enforcement. They see the value in it. There is, if you will, a false narrative, and I don't like to use that terminology because it's been so politicized. But the truth is, there has been a false narrative that somehow, some way, the majority of people in communities, particularly in minority communities, don't support law enforcement. That is simply not true. One of the first sessions of the police at conference I attended was called Community Engagement 101. And it made clear that there really isn't any one way to interact with your community. Instead, it's about listening to a community's needs and figuring out what it will take for them to trust you and help bring down crime. I spoke about this with Gina Hawkins, who just this year retired as the police chief of Fayetteville, North Carolina. She's also vice president of an association for women in law enforcement. And I began by asking what community engagement means to her. So for me, community engagement, because I've been doing this for 34 years, I recognize public safety is truly going to be about engaging and involving everybody in the community. So in community engagement, it's truly about education, internally and externally. Internally means people who are like law enforcement, the government aspect or agencies, and externally, the community. Community engagement means educating the community about their roles, their power, empowering them to understand they play a huge role in the safety of their community. But prior to this conference, if you think about it, how is someone who is hired in law enforcement know that how to engage someone unless you've had extensive training or extensive experience or been trained in counseling engagement you're just going from what your foundation history is right and that may be bad well this conference is actually outlining cities communities who have done some things well and done some things bad and to learn from that so that way we can almost like 
be a force multiplier in training the people out there doing the work and then teach them how do you build those bridges from the community and get them to the table to understand they have a true voice and we're all here for the same reason, which is to make our community safe, to build bridges and work together for the same mission. Give me one specific story that comes to mind for you of a success story of kind of reaching out and reestablishing trust within a community. I have plenty of stories, and because I understood going through law enforcement, we went from an era of saying, don't talk to the media, don't talk to the community, and don't share what we're doing. Be humble, right? Keep that to ourselves. So that left us not sharing what's happening. So for me, when I went to become a chief, the importance of how do you invite the community to the table? How do you provide resources? So I was able to have a summer camp, empowerment camp for kids, my whole tenure as a chief. So two weeks, we provided empowering the youth from 11 to 15 on creating their own, what they thought is bad happening to them. We taught them how to research. We taught them how to display it in some medium, whether it be a video or whether it be a poem or whether it be a monologue or a montage. I created the faith forum also in my community in which We invited the faith-based community to come to listen to them as leaders, and then we provided them training. So that truly was a force multiplier for members of the organization to say, oh, I can have that communication. And then during the time period of George Floyd or COVID, the phone calls that I received from those relationships were directly to the police department. So now they're feeling safe to say, I want to call them because I don't want this happening and crime happening and they're coming from the community. So calls we would have never had came to us to keep the entire community safe. So there's a lot of stories that I can tell because I know that importance, but you're right with changing the culture of the department, of sharing the success. And it's really not the department's success. It is the community's success because you're, you're highlighting them. You're highlighting them to say, understand that you play a big role in public safety and keeping the community safe. It is not the police jobs. We are waiting for your guidance on what you expect in your community to take place. It's not just police whose culture and mindset has to change here. The police at conference included mental health practitioners who are working with police and co-responding to calls. And also at the conference, I met Jorge Duran. He's the chief investigator of the San Diego District Attorney's Office. He told me he was eager to send other prosecutors to future iterations of this training conference. And he began by explaining why his office reaches out to the local community in the first place. From a prosecutor standpoint, we engage with the community kind of on a limited basis by dealing with victims pretty much or witnesses to crime because that's when we get involved is after the crime has happened. But we realize that there's information out there that we could use to maybe push some of our initiatives. For example, we have like a drug court So people that are arrested for uh, narcotics violations and they don't have any other history of crime or any other charges, if we realize that the reason they're committing the crime is to support their habit, they need treatment, really. That's an approach. So as a prosecuting officer, we have that option whether let's try this person and send them to jail or we could send them, divert them to this program for treatment. So we have drug court. We also have veterans court. San Diego is a huge military town. So we have a lot of veterans in our community also that unfortunately are engaged in crime. So veterans that come in, if we could determine that the reason they're committing crime is because of their service, like let's say PTSD, 
then we divert those veterans to a different court as opposed to sending them to where they're looking at jail time now. And the courts really, these, these different diversion courts, it's basically community service. So they have an option. You could go to regular court and maybe wind up going to jail, or you could go to this court, take advantage of the services, and then after a period of time, your case will be dismissed. So we need to, as a prosecutor's office, we need to be aware of what the issues are, what the other underlying issues are, and what our role is in that community engagement and how we could address public safety without incarcerating everybody, right? Because jail space is limited to begin with. So as a result of that, we understand how important it is to get feedback from the community. So we have three attorneys, our prosecutors, that are uh, have the position of neighborhood prosecutors or community prosecutors. They don't try cases. Their full-time job is to attend community meetings and share information about what the office does and how the office can address or help with public safety. And that's where we get a lot of ideas, like for homeless court, which is something we're going to start now, drug court, veterans court. We get that feedback from the community. Juvenile diversion as well is another big thing, you know, because people are saying, okay, you have the school to prison pipeline for the kids. So we fund a pretty extensive juvenile diversion program as well. So from the prosecutor's office, which is not many district attorney's offices across the country are involved as we are. I think in San Diego, we're kind of on the cutting edge, I like to say, about being proactive with community engagement. What you're describing there is not something you necessarily associate with a prosecutor's office. You assume that a prosecutor's office is focused on sentencing, but is this something you feel other prosecutors, like community engagement is as important for prosecutors and finding alternatives to jail is as important for prosecutors as it is for police. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think we do have to be proactive in how to, you know, help in solving the broader solution of, you know, impacting crime, increasing public safety, but at the same time doing it in a way that it's not a lifetime that's going to follow them. It's not this thing that's going to follow them through their whole career that they, that they could get their record expunged for low-level offenses. It's something the prosecutor has a discretion to do, right, whether to charge certain crimes and whether to follow certain courses of action. So I think you're going to see more and more prosecutors' office engage in this community engagement to try to impact, you know, from both ends, right, the preventive piece of it to try to get folks not to commit crime and then on the kind of the rehabilitation side of it as well. Now, one of the things you heard throughout the police at conference in Atlanta was a need to change the culture. And this, of course, starts at the top. Those police officers involved in community engagement for years were urged to convince their police chiefs to make it a core element of their department's work and to reach out even to those who don't like you and don't trust you. The point was made over and over that restoring trust and making the time to engage communities can actually prevent crimes and encourage witnesses and victims to come forward when crimes occur. It could also help with police morale, which many here complained is extremely low, and that retaining police in this high-crime, polarized environment has become increasingly difficult. I spoke with Laura King, chief of police for the McHenry County Conservation District in Illinois and an expert on officer safety and wellness. She told me that police can't really control what people in the community think of them, but... 
but we have way more control over the leadership of our organization. And what we're finding is by connecting with the officers, bringing them back to the reasons that they joined this profession in the first place and the good that they intended in doing their communities, reminding them that that noble calling is still there, that we can re-engage those officers no matter what the community climate looks like. And when we re-engage the officers and improve morale internally, the forward face that they put out towards the community is different. And now you see a different type of community climate because the officers are responding in different ways. They're connecting with the community in different ways. And everything is getting better and starting to move in the right direction. When you talk about leadership It hasn't always been recognized in the past as a core responsibility of a police department to engage with the community. What's your sense of where we are on that now? How much is that now a core function of how police operate? Well, I think we're really seeing the model of leadership in police departments change. Once upon a time, police work was a blue-collar profession, and really, it was a lot about loyalty and tenure, who moved into the executive office. Nowadays, we're seeing much more of an emphasis on training and education and professionalism, and we're seeing a lot more fair and impartial processes. And part of that is resulting in improved leadership for our profession. Now, for me personally, I believe that if we're talking about improving officer morale, we really need to focus on the individual officers and on creating not only an environment where they can grow as professional individuals, but also an environment where they can grow as persons. The Police at Conference was filled with interesting individual examples of how police are reaching out to their communities. There were initiatives introduced like Coffee with a Cop, Clippers and Cops, Citizens Academies where ordinary people are faced with everyday policing scenarios. Many police officers admitted that they're not really good at highlighting what works, and complained that their good faith outreach efforts aren't really broadcast in the toxicity over policing today. So with that in mind... Here are a few examples. Deputy Commissioner Mark Stewart, I'm in charge of Community Affairs Bureau, NYPD. We even have a program called Civilian Police Academy. It's a six-week course where we bring civilians in and we put them in place as police officers and see what police officers do. We put gun belts on them, we put them in radio cars, they do car stops, we teach them about the penal law and the codes, we teach them about search and frisk and search and seizure, we tell them when cops can shoot, when they can't shoot, we teach them deadly physical force. So I think that's a great program that we're trying to get in every borough in New York City. I was at Trump's arraignment. Uh in New York. The park outside of it, two opposing sides. You had police on the outside, but then you had community engagement specific police in different shirts who were walking around the park trying to engage people, separate them if needed, all of that. The cops you saw with the light blue shirts, they're under me, the community affairs. Due to our studies, we realized that people feel more comfortable with the light blue shirts than the dark blue shirts. So that's done purposely. We have protests, or we have riots, you'll always see the light blue shirts out there. It's a shame that some people see the dark blue shirts because they're the enforcers, like, oh, they're not like the good cop. You got good cop, bad cop, but they're the same cops. But it's amazing how just the color of the uniform will soften up the mode. So that's done purposely. And they have experience dealing with our communities. I'm Director Glenn Burks. I'm over the Office of Community Policing in the Chicago Police Department. 
For us, it's not about the number of events. Matter of fact, we hate the word events. We engage the community because what we're really focused on is building that relationship to listening to them, to giving them opportunities to co-create that safety plan. And is there an example that comes to mind, somebody particular you reached out to? <laughs> Over my career, I can think of examples throughout. I can look at a, a particular area when I first started my career where we had a lot of prostitution on one particular street. It wasn't the number of arrests that we made there. It was working with community partners to outreach but when we worked with the individuals working in the sex trade, it wasn't us. It was our partners, those social services that went out and reached out to help those people, to give them services that gave them the opportunity to move from working on the streets to moving into situations where they could live a fuller life without having to work on the streets. I'm Jeff Richards. I'm the sheriff in Franklin County, Kansas. Only a certain amount of people in our communities are committing the crimes, and it's the same people over and over. And it was like we had a revolving door in our jail. So we wanted to get programming in place that was going to help not just reduce crime, but we wanted to pour into their lives and help them change. So we've partnered with our local faith community, one church in particular, and they come in and do a jail ministry. They hold church service once a week. They live stream it from their church. That helps bridge that gap a little bit so when they get out, they know someone at that church if they choose to go there. Another day during the week, this same ministry team comes in and they do small groups. They help people work through anger issues or financial problems, relationship problems, whatever the case may be. And then they have also what we call one-on-ones. It's a peer-to-peer counseling type thing. And we've really seen a lot of success. It's really impacted recidivism. Inmate on inmate violence has decreased. Inmate against staff violence has really decreased. Both of those things going down were a good thing. At the end of the day, a key part of restoring trust, as simple as it sounds, is communication. Police need to become more open and approachable in their communities. I spoke to Chief Matthew Murray of Yakima City in Washington State, whose department won an Emmy for informative videos it releases on social media. He began by describing why he's become convinced that speaking to the media is so important. Culturally and historically, Police departments have been very closed-mouthed, and they were taught for decades, no, don't say anything, no comment, you know, cross your arms and just pretend you're not going to answer. When you look at the situation with Michael Brown in St. Louis, Ferguson, and they were not talking for over a day, it turned into the entire narrative of don't shoot, and they're still chasing a lot of that, you know, even with definitive reports from government agencies saying that that didn't happen, they're still chasing that. Well, the problem was the police department chose not to speak. And you just can't do that in this day and age because people are used to getting information fast. One of the challenges is you're going to get stuff wrong. You have to know, too, that you have to be willing to say, hey, we were wrong. This is not true. But at the onset, if you're going to speak immediately, you can't know what is good, solid information of what somebody just said or got passed along incorrectly. So one thing you'll see me do if you look up any of our videos on our social media is I'll say, you know, things can change. Facts can change this Atlanta shooting. I mean, it was happening so fast. All of us were right here down the street. You give out the best information you can so that people can act on that information and then just ask for them to give you the grace to correct it if it changes. You bring up the Atlanta shooting. You actually had a case this week as well, just ahead of the conference of a police shooting. Yep. It was interesting to hear you talk about, I guess, the balance there too between openly communicating but also 
the worry that comes with that from a police officer who is involved, whose name is then going to be out there in the press and what that means. Talk through that process and how you go about managing the communication side of that. Well, I appreciate the way you ask the question because often officers are not seen as human. What if they have three kids at the grade school and now everybody's going to know their dad shot somebody and the guy died? I mean, it's not just an incident that affects him. It affects his whole family, his wife, his relationship, his career. People will go find out where he lives. Sometimes they'll march. It's officers doing what they believe is the right thing, trying to do the right thing within the law in a very, very short period of time, and then having this huge amount of scrutiny come on to them afterward. Now, that's understandable and justified. We, we have the power to take life and freedom. And so those are very, very important things. And so it does demand a level of scrutiny and transparency. But know that it's hard on the officers too. They have a life they're living too. And they know they're going to go to church and everybody's going to want to ask them what happened and what's going on. And they're worried about being judged and they're worried about being criticized and they fear for their children's safety. And so what I was talking about was the fact that we can't just consider the external. That's what everybody's focused on and it is important. But, you know, America's losing cops. And there's a rising crime that's directly correlated to that loss. We have cities with hundreds less officers than they had five years ago. That's a problem. We're seeing crime spike everywhere. I think America is realizing we need police. So we're also going to have to be contemplative about how we respond to incidents and consider them as people, too. Not only protect their rights and protect their due process, but offer them grace until we know the story. Let's not just go quick to judge. And then let's also understand that what they're going through is very difficult as well. Part of what you've done is go to social media, go straight to the community. You do still have to work with the media as well. So I'm curious how that has gone. And when you describe an incident like this, how has that gone for you? How have you improved that relationship? In January, we had a shooting where a guy walked into a Circle K and killed three people for no reason. And we were a national news story that entire day. Well, I can't get it to be national on my social media, right? I need CNN and ABC and CBS, NPR. I need them to do that. And we needed people to know this person was on the loose. We didn't know where he was. And he's, a, he's clearly a danger. And so to say we don't need the media or the media serves no purpose is silly. What we need is a good working relationship where we're both trying to achieve the same thing. And that's telling the truth. There are many things that police cannot control, gun laws in the U.S. perhaps being top of the list. But they can control how they comport themselves, how they behave in their cities and communities. Reverend Markel Hutchins, the organizer of the Police at Conference, says he hopes to be back bigger and better next year, and to make a small contribution to cutting crime and restoring trust in policing in the United States. For Monocle, in Atlanta, Georgia... I'm Chris Chermack. Well, that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. For more from the world of urbanism, sign up to the podcast to get new episodes every week and subscribe to Monocle magazine. And you can do that at monocle.com. Today's show was produced by Chris Chermack, Carlos Rabello, and David Stevens. And David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, here's PJ Harvey with The Community of Hope. Thank you for listening, city lovers. Hold up. 